0: This is the EY Podcast, Tax and Law in Focus, from one of the world's largest and most influential group of C-Suite advisors. I'm your host, Susanna Streeter, and today we're focusing on digital services taxes. Moves to bring in these highly controversial taxes by countries across the world have led to arguably the biggest shakeup in international taxation for several decades They're what drove the United States to put its weight behind the ambitious OECD-led proposals to update the rules of international taxation to better reflect the digitization of the global economy. And they've narrowly avoided provoking another trade dispute with threats of tariffs on a whole range of goods from shoes and champagne to motorbikes and cheese. There is now agreement from a raft of European countries to phase out digital services taxes once the first project of the new global tax blueprint is brought in, known as Pillar 1 of the BEPS 2.0 deal. But this high-stakes game isn't over yet. Agreement still hasn't been reached between the US and other nations, which have dangled the threat of digital services taxes. So, it's a fast-moving world, and in this podcast, we're going to be exploring the issues at stake, the risks to be aware of, and just what business should be doing to respond, especially given the global agreement on the OECD's ambitious new taxation framework. And I'm really delighted to be speaking to three of the best informed professionals in tax across geographies and time zones to bring you deep insights into one of the most challenging and contentious themes in international taxation. But before I introduce them, please remember conversations during this podcast should not be relied upon as accounting, tax, legal, investment, or any other professional advice. Listeners must consult their own advisors. So without much further ado, let me introduce Barbara Angus, the Global Tax Policy Leader for EY, who's joining us from Washington, D.C. Hello, Barbara. I hear you're also a card-carrying member of a comedy troupe, but we're expecting more than just a few one-liners from you today, given that you've also had a long and distinguished career working with the U.S. Congress and U.S. Treasury and in the private sector as well.
1: Happy to be with you, Susanna, for this discussion.
0: Also joining us from Silicon Valley is EY International Tax and Transaction Services Global Tech Tax Leader, Channing Flynn. Hello, Channing. It's really great to have you with us. Hi, Susanna. It's a pleasure to be here. Look forward to our discussion today. And on the line from Hamburg in Germany is EY's Matthias Luther, global leader of the Digital Services Tax Activation Team. Hello, Matthias. Wie geht's? Danke, sehr gut. Happy to be with you. Very good. Okay, thank you so much to all of you for being with me. But I'm going to start with you, Channing. Seeing as you're coming to us from Silicon Valley, it does make sense. So tell me, what is it about the digital economy that really merits the extra attention from tax authorities? I mean, there isn't a consulting services tax or a construction services tax after all.
2: Yeah, Suzanne, I get this question a lot. I mean, in fact, if you look back through modern history there are in fact very sector oriented taxes we've seen taxes on oil and gas companies and taxes on financial services institutions including consumer banks and commercial banks and even taxes on transportation like the airlines and other transportation organizations so we've we've seen specialized taxes before the digital economy is unique because of course it is ethereal it's over the internet And because one company and one country can do business in another country without having to actually go to that other country, it raises the specter of who should be paying taxes where. The digital services taxes that we see today, and they're going to be the focus, Susanna, of our conversation today, have really been, in my mind, used as a stick to get parties to the bargaining table to talk about reform to the global tax system, the pillar one initiative that you mentioned in your introduction. So this is coming about because there is a view, there has been a view for six or so years that companies in the digital domain aren't paying the right amount of taxes in the countries. Uh, from which they extract their business revenues and profits. And so they're really being used as a catalyst to get parties to the table to talk about a global pillar one system to change it. So that's, I think, how it came
0: about. And is that what prompted nations to individually introduce digital services taxes and almost prompt this flurry of tariffs on goods?
2: Yeah, it did get a bit emotional uh, over the last few years. That is certainly true. I think that some countries moved ahead faster than others because they were trying to exert pressure on the OECD to do the larger reform initiative in the Pillar 1 uh, framework that, that you mentioned and, and we'll discuss a bit today. So the UK and France got a bit out ahead of the other countries because they said, we want reform in this area to come faster. Uh, and then other countries sort of jumped on board that initiative. And what we have now is unfortunately an incongruent global patchwork of DSTs, all of which apply differently and uh, different transactions. Some are broader, some are narrower, uh, and they're not really coordinated, which represents uncertainty for so many global organizations. And so the, the the goal to withdraw them and get back to the drawing board as to what a new system could look like is important. It did get a bit emotional, Susanna, with respect to they sound like tariffs, right? You, you, you use the word tariffs. And in fact, um, many countries view them as components of a larger trade war initiative. Uh, and so many countries don't like that, right? They want to pull them back and get back to an agreement on a framework that works for everybody fairly. And so implicating them with t- t- taxes on cheese and, and luxury goods gets people to the bargaining table pretty quickly.
0: Absolutely. Okay, let me bring in Matthias. So Matthias, many European countries were early adopters. Why were these taxes driven through? Just why were they so high on the agenda, do you think?
3: I guess Channing has already pointed it out. You had this political pressure where you've seen disruptive uh, new economies, uh, new companies emerging, being very, very successful, often at at least perceived uh, being uh, located in the U.S., And then also being perceived as companies who do not pay their fair share in the countries where they do generate their profit. And this political pressure, I think, was the main purpose behind introducing uh, DSTs together with a, let's say, difficult uh, diplomatic situation um, in the last few years between US and and Europe. But it has changed a little bit now and it might make it uh, maybe difficult to see these taxes go quickly, that is that the countries which have introduced DSTs obviously generate revenue out of it and they don't put it on a bank account or, or just on the side to pay it back. They spend it and they are used to spending it now. And it's it's like, like a drug. Uh, it's very difficult to get rid of something where you now rely on, on your daily business uh, or on your daily spending.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me bring in Barbara, because, Barbara, you've previously been pretty intricately involved with making U.S. tax policy and driving tax reform. So how has the official U.S. position on this evolved?
1: You know, Susanna, it's interesting. I would say that the U.S. position on digital services taxes has been remarkably remarkably stable, um, over, over several administrations. So, dating back to the Obama administration, the, the pos- position with respect to specialized taxation of digital businesses or digital business activity was, was that it was both inappropriate and I- impossible. And impossible in the sense that it, it is not, it's not possible or practical to define what is a digital business or what is digital activity in a, particularly in an area that is a Evolving technologically so rapidly and and that position that began in the in the Obama administration continued through the Trump administration and the and the Biden administration at the same time we've seen bipartisan opposition to to digital services taxes expressed in Congress uh, multiple letters over many years written by the the chairman and ranking minority member of each of the tax writing committees so joint letters expressed Expressing concern uh, that digital services taxes are discriminatory and inappropriate, and expressing support for instead addressing any issues related to the taxation of the digital economy through through coordinated multilateral efforts, such as the OECD project. Now, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily um, interpret that as being support for all aspects of of the work that, that the OECD is doing, but expressing the importance of a coordinated approach that could be done through that kind of multilateral effort. Do
0: you think there was a bit of a feeling in the United States that the countries imposing and advocating for various DSTs are unfairly targeting the success of US tech giants?
1: I think that that was a, that that is a very strongly held, held view. And, and looking at the, at the design of some of the digital services taxes and the thresholds for, for being subject to them really show that, that, that they are, they do disproportionately affect companies of the size of U.S. companies. And in some countries, that targeting of U.S. companies was, was, was absolutely explicit. And I think that also was the basis for the trade effort that began in the U.S., the USTR using its authority under under section 301 to to bring a trade action um and concluding that the taxes were discriminatory which led to the to the development of the of the tariffs in in response and that also is something that that has been been remarkably stable and began in the trump administration and continued in the biden administration and that bipartisan uh, view of these issues is quite unusual in washington these days where 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 there are such strong partisan divisions.
0: Yes, it's an interesting development, and of course, the U.S. imposed and then suspended those punitive tariffs on imports from countries such as France and the U.K. over the issue. Channing, to what extent do you think the U.S. stance was driven by concerns from big tech?
2: Yeah, I, I think substantially. So, Susanna, in the sense that, well, first of all, big tech is you know a, 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 a loose term. I think there's so many tech companies uh and big tech often gets associated just with a handful of them so my role and my perspective is is that anyone that operates in the digital domain needs to be worried about these not just a handful of companies that typically make the news in this area uh, and that's really the focus i try to push in in our conversations globally uh and with our clients so all kinds of companies are tech companies, including those that were traditionally not tech companies, like an automotive, automotive company, for example, they worry about this. So that drove the US stance on this is how, how uh, out of control could this get? It did feel when it came in, Susanna, very targeted, or to use the term that's often referenced here, ring fence, that it was just a tax on a few companies It was designed that way by its revenue thresholds, meaning how big did you have to be before you were subjected to it, uh, to to these taxes. And they were on very specific types of transactions. So for example, on online platforms or transactions in consumer data or certainly, online advertising income. So that felt very focused and very specialized, which raised the ire of these taxes as a discriminatory, meaning they, they weren't equally applied. Obviously, big tech is, the, I think the media defines that, or all tech gets worried about that because it has a little bit of a Trojan horse feel. Once you put taxes like this into play, and this is to Matthias's point, jurisdictions get addicted to the revenue that they raise. And it's very hard to convince lawmakers to turn off that source of revenue. So I think that combination of things drove uh, the, the, the perspective and raised the ire of not only the companies, but also our lawmakers and our representatives here that make the rules. And they say, we need to focus, as Barbara indicated, on a on a discussion path to get these things repealed, meaning to, to bring down the temperature in the room and focus on the larger reform initiative that is pillar
0: one. So do you think, Barbara, that it was the threat of these tariffs that really led to more support of these OECD proposals?
1: I think in thinking about tariffs I'd come back to, to Channing's point that the DST is in some ways a form of tariff and really when you look back at the at the origins of the concept of a digital services tax it it was a it was a concept developed in by the European Commission and intended as a temporary measure uh, that the ultimate solution to addressing the taxation of the digital economy was to develop a coordinated approach to new income tax rules that would have a different way of dividing income taxing rights among jurisdictions to reflect the, the digitalization of the economy and the DST was only intended as a temporary measure in the period while those rules were, were being developed and I think just just like uh, many view tariffs as creating a barrier to global trade and investment that is so important to the global economy digital services taxes these unilateral taxes that can result in double taxation pr- provide a, a similar barrier. And and I think having the combination of both both the digital services taxes and and the the more traditional tariffs, I, I think it really reinforced the importance of countries getting together to focus on trying to work through the income tax system to come up with a solution.
0: So, what's your take on this, Matthias? Do you think it was seen as a temporary measure? Is that how you think companies saw these DSTs?
3: The governments in Europe saw it um, as a temporary measure, especially to generate um, pressure on, and I must say it, on the U.S. <laughs> to comply, to to, to um, support international agreement during the BEPS 2.0 project. Um, what I found interesting is that um, tariffs is a traditional measure to in- ensure free trade of goods, um, and it's now used to fight um, a tax on a service which shows how much the world, the text world is changing at the moment. It's quite
0: astonishing. <laughs> It certainly has been astonishing. Let's now focus as well on this involvement of the OECD. It's a centre of deep expertise. And it's been, of course, as we know, highly influential in changing the tax landscape. But actually, this whole project has been in hand for some time, hasn't it? So, Barbara, tell me more about the evolution of tax policy discussion at the OECD and just how it works and how BEPS 2.0 has come about.
1: Well, you know, the BEPS 2.0 project really is unprecedented for the, for the OECD in many respects, it, it, is, um, it is a is it is a project that is much bigger and broader than the OECD. It involves much f- more fundamental changes to the to, to the global tax system that than the, than the OECD has tackled in the in the past, um, and and therefore it has it has more significant political dimensions. The, the The project is being done by the OECD in partnership with the G20 and the OECD has partnered with the G20 really since the G20's creation about about 12 years ago and and the and between the members of the OECD and the G20 when you include the European Union countries because the European Union has a seat in the G20 number about 50 countries but this BEPS 2.0 project is being done through the OECD G20 inclusive framework that is now up to 141 countries. So a truly global project involving countries with very, very diverse economies and very different perspectives on taxation. And, And the project built on a on an earlier project done by the OECD and the G20 on base erosion and and profit shifting, which is where this got the BEPS 2.0 name, uh, but but this this goes to much more fundamental changes, and, and so Pillar One, which seeks to change how taxing rights over global business income are allocated between and among countries, really involves the ultimate political question. So it doesn't get more fundamental than that. But Pillar One came out of the, the prior project that had an element focused on the digital economy, where at the time, in the first project, they weren't able to reach agreement on the kinds of fundamental changes that they're tackling now, and tackling them with more countries at the table, which both makes the project more complicated, but also, I think, for something like Pillar 1 is important to have to have it be truly global, because the idea of changing how taxing rights are divided requires you know unprecedented coordination and cooperation among countries so so that everyone agrees on those those same new divisions the second element of this project uh, pillar two, the, the, the proposals for new global minimum tax rules, was initially introduced as being about addressing remaining opportunities for base erosion and profit shifting, but pretty quickly it became clear that it was really about addressing countries wanting to address low-rate tax competition among countries. That also then goes to pretty fundamental political questions and the core sovereignty of countries over tax. So, a very unusual and ambitious project for the OECD.
0: Certainly, it's so ambitious. And Channing, do you think the adoption of BEPS 2.0 really does signal the end of unilateral DSTs in various economies?
2: (laughs) If I knew the answer to that question, (laughs) Suzanne, I, um, I think I'd be at a much higher level in the world than I am right now. My view of your question is no, unfortunately, and I don't mean to be a cynic, but I think the digital services taxes that we've seen brought into effect that are planning on going out of effect on successful adoption of the BEPS 2.0 framework, I do think, Susanna, those will go away. Again, they are revenue threshold, meaning they apply to certain companies of certain size and they apply to specific fairly esoteric types of transactions. I feel strongly that those will go away because that is part of the big bargain here that the U.S. has struck with the OECD and the participating countries. So yes on that. However, where my cynicism comes in on this is that taxing the internet is very appealing to many jurisdictions because especially smaller jurisdictions because these big organizations can digitally extract money from consumers or enterprises in other countries Uh, and so finding ways to tax the digital economy I think that trend will continue many countries Vietnam and Israel to name two examples have nexus-based taxes which simply say if you are set up in one country and you do business here say in Israel or Vietnam then you will have to pay taxes on the mere fact that you're conducting your trade over the internet. And so those aren't digital services taxes. They're just basically different types of taxes on digital economy. So I think that trend will continue. And we'll talk a little bit about an example of that in the EU, something known as the European Union levy. And Matthias will chat a bit about that in a moment. So I think the DSTs as part of the BEPS 2.0 framework project will hopefully go away. Uh, But I do believe that jurisdictions will always look to the internet and the digital economy that's conducted on the internet and seek sources of revenue in that
0: regard. Okay, well, thanks very much for that, Channing. Let me hand over to Matthias. Can you define, for example, Matthias, how the digital levy is distinguished in Europe from the DSTs currently in force?
3: Yeah, happy to. Uh, You need to know that um, we do not have a Final proposal for the digital levy yet, so um, it's a little bit of uh, guessing, but um, there are some simple truths um, which apply. First of all, the digital economy is regarded as being the winner of the pandemic versus budgets, um, state budgets being the losers. So the states need to raise new taxes. Uh, they need to increase their revenues to balance out the pandemic relief measures they have introduced. Um, And obviously they turn to the one economy which they think still has money, um, where they can get more tax revenue from. These digital companies which are targeted um, and which uh, are targeted to be, to be taxed are mostly foreign companies, meaning you can uh, increase your revenue without creating new taxes for your own taxpayers, for your own voters. And the digital levy will be, I think, the role model for, for similar taxes around the world. Um, the EU has a problem that they do have a, a pandemic relief uh, package. And they have agreed that half of that package sh- should be financed by the digital levy. So they are forced to <laughs> introduce a digital levy because if that fails, they need to come up with something else to uh, generate the revenue which they desperately need. Um, I think that's a situation a lot of countries are in uh, around the world. And if the EU finds a way to introduce a digital levy which is not infringing the agreements uh, uh, by the uh, inclusive framework um, on abolishing a digital services tax, then I think this what they have, the solution found by the European Union will be quickly introduced by other countries around the world, which have simply the same issues. Um, and need to solve them um, and um, are looking for a, a solution where they can generate revenues without having to text their own voters.
0: Would you agree, Channing? Obviously, as Matthias is saying, we still don't know the details of exactly what the design will be. But What do you think the latest developments are indicating?
2: Yeah, I I mean, I think Pillar 1 is about allocating taxing rights. And again, the cool thing in my view, and as intended by the OECD about Pillar 1, is it doesn't just apply to esoteric transactions on the internet. It can potentially apply to any type of company that meets their definitions of subjecting profits in one country to tax where the consumers are. So it is intended as the big policy agreed upon consensus replacement. When I remember I said earlier, Susanna, that the DSTs in my mind were put in place as sort of the stick of the carrots and sticks and analogy to get the parties to the table to agree to something like pillar one. Pillar one is what we have. That's what they've said they want to move forward with. And I think people understand it and are willing to discuss about how to do it. So I think that the, 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 the weird thing about the, pillar one is that there's so many unanswered questions about how it will work. Remember that in the pillar one world, one country has to give up taxing rights to another country based upon the fact that the consumers paying for the digital economy, good or service are in that country. And that is going to cause some people to say, wait a minute, am I winning or losing in this agreement? And so that design feature still hasn't been worked out at the technical level, which I think people are waiting for. And in the meantime, I think the DSTs will continue in force until there is an agreement on that. And we must continue to think, Susanna, of the fact that pillar one may not be successful. I think lots of people believe that pillar two uh, has been agreed upon and will be uh, our, our new minimum tax policy framework. I think there's a lot of optimism there. But Pillar one is a great policy response because it addresses the issue for which the DSTs were brought into force, but because it's so complicated and politically, I think challenging for all countries to agree to, it's not a hundred percent certain that as designed, it will be brought into force in a couple of years. So that design feature still has to be worked out.
0: So that's pillar one. But let me bring in Barbara. What's your best guess then, Barbara, about pillar two and when it will be adopted? At what rate? And do you have any kind of timescale?
1: Well, pillar two actually is moving quite quickly. There's a lot of political momentum behind it. The the OECD G20 target is to have new global minimum tax rules in place by 2023. And we're already seeing legislative activity. There is current activity in the U.S. to make changes to the existing U.S. rules to bring them in line uh, with the OECD G20 global minimum tax design. And the EU has plans to introduce a directive, put it out in draft form at the end of this year to uh, mandate that EU countries put global minimum tax rules in place. So legislative activity beginning already.
0: So that's a kind of time frame. I want to bring in Matthias now, given that you lead the firm's efforts in helping companies determine and compute taxes on the digital economy. What do you think the real key issues are that companies are struggling with right now in complying with DSTs?
3: Yeah, The main issue is that it is only a temporary tax. So how much do you invest to actually uh, comply with it? It's a, a huge burden on companies for something which is just uh, temporary. And it contributes to a lot of insecurities these companies have with regard to um, a radically changing tax uh, framework around the globe, um, especially considering then a lot of more traditional companies, and I'm talking actually a lot to traditional companies about digital services taxes, um, are changing and have to change their business models and move towards more digitalized business models. Um, So they are entering an area of Texas where they have no experiences uh, being more terrestrial companies so far.
0: Yes, I mean, there are risks, aren't there? Huge risks. Channing, what do you perceive is the biggest risk for businesses right now?
2: Yeah, I think the evolution of it and how the Pillar 1 consensus will evolve relative to the repeal of the DST, Mm -hmm. Susanna, sort of the query that you set out earlier in our podcast today. So, a risk is that you get pillar one and DSTs stay in effect because jurisdictions don't agree that the objectives were fulfilled. I think that's a large risk. I think another risk, remember the DSTs and similar taxes on the digital economy, Susanna, are imposed on revenue, which is a different type of tax than one opposed on your profit. And so I think a business risk that organizations that operate in the digital economy foresee and worry about is, are we paying taxes all over the world on our revenue? And how is that going to impact our cash flow? How is that going to impact our ability to invest and grow markets and make acquisitions in new technologies? you know, nobody likes paying taxes, but we're all resigned that we have to pay fair taxes. And I think the summary is that people understand they have to pay taxes when they make money and certainly make money over the internet. The internet is nothing more than a medium on which companies conduct business. But feeling that you're being taxed unfairly or taxed unjustly is a business risk they worry about. And so how do you structure your online business, your digital business in such a way that you feel you're contributing to the global tax take effectively but you're not being targeted and you're not paying more than your competitor based upon where you're situated in the world. So I think those are the risks that people worry about.
0: So let's look into the crystal ball now. And I want to ask each of you before you go, how you believe the future is going to play out. So Barbara, tell me, how do you think the taxation of the digital economy will evolve after all of this?
1: I would expect it to continue to evolve. I, I think they're, they are looking at, at significant ch- changes to, to deal with it. The digital economy right now, but they may need to make more fundamental changes, and they've got to deal with the fact that the technology is changing every day. Uh, and so, how can they develop rules that will be right for the current technology and also work for the for the technology that's invented tomorrow?
0: Absolutely, and Matthias, uh, what in your mind are the likely scenarios that might play out, and what kind of timeline?
3: My, exp- my hope is actually that we will see more harmonization in how digital economy is taxed around the globe. So to make it easier for companies to comply. However, I'm afraid, I think we will see a more complex tax framework and, in which companies are struggling and yeah, need to, to, to become experts uh, in, a, in a whole different way than they are operating at the moment and the tax departments are operating at the moment.
0: Okay, thank you very much. And finally, Channing, a big question for you. What do you think the next big reform of global tax will look like?
2: Wow, give me the hard question at the end. I'd like to say I think Barbara and Matthias's points about what's coming next and what they worry about are spot on. I think what's coming next is obviously we're going to see consensus around the concept of a global minimum tax that's already happening. We're going to get some details later this year. Um, And so that is moving forward. The reallocation of taxing rights for which the DST has been the stick to motivate people to the negotiating table, I think that's not going to advance as smoothly as many hope for. And, and, And I think that it will lead to additional discussions about how to effectively tax the internet, which is, Susanna, what this all is really about. This isn't going to be resolved in 2021. And it certainly, in my view, is not going to be resolved finally in 2022. The internet is going to morph to Barbara's points. New ways of business are gonna continue to evolve as processing power and internet capacity expands and we get things like five and six G. Our world is transforming and how the governments around the world seek to tax it will continue to transform. So Susanna, that's good news for us in the sense that maybe we have to do another podcast on this topic in several Mm -hmm. months to a year's time. But that's my, my prediction as to where this is all going, meaning it will continue to evolve.
0: Channing, thank you very much. And thanks to all of you for those quick far answers on such a long-term horizon. But a reminder as well that this is merely informed speculation as, of course, bigger geopolitical forces than us are at play. It has been a really remarkable, insightful and information-packed episode on what's perhaps the most topical and high-stakes issue in taxation. So I would once again like to thank Barbara Matthias and Channing for taking time to break the complicated technicalities down for the audience.
2: Yes, thank you very much, Susanna, for hosting us. I thought it was a very informed discussion. I think doing this in a podcast for our audience is fantastic and look forward to doing it
3: again, probably
2: in 2022.
1: Thank you, Susanna, for the chance to be part of this lively
3: debate. Yeah, vielen Dank. Um, it was a lot of fun and I really enjoyed it.
0: For more information, you can visit ey.com and a quick note from the attorneys, The views of third parties set out in this podcast are not necessarily the views of the global EY organisation, nor its member firms, and moreover, they should be seen in the context of the time in which they were made. I'm Susanna Streeter, and I hope you'll join me again for the next edition of Tax and Law in Focus, brought to you by EY. EY, building a better working world.